Welcome to episode 1794 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Benjamin Berg of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. So just like last time, we are devoting today's episode to talking about measuring the unmeasurable, talking to some authors of recent research about difficult-to-quantify aspects of baseball that's caught our eye. So later on in this episode, we'll be talking to Grant Washburn of PitcherList about quantifying owner performance and ownership groups. But first, we want to talk a little bit about player development with Patrick Brennan. Patrick has written for various sites over the years, beyond the box score, hardball times, etc. But he wrote a piece for his own site just last week about player development in the minor leagues, kind of building off some previous work he had done about player development in the major leagues. And he is also the director of analytics for the Kansas State baseball team, which we will maybe ask him about as well. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, first I want to start off by thanking you guys for having me. Uh, I've listened to this podcast as much as I could uh, for the past couple of years, so I'm thrilled to be on. But yeah, uh, Ben, you gave a pretty good summary of what I've done the past few years. <laughs> and um happy to get into uh, the specifics of the article and anything else you guys might want to talk about. Great. So what has drawn you to this topic? Because as I mentioned, you did a piece a couple of years ago that was looking at this at the major league level and which teams have managed to outperform their projections over the years, which you could chalk up to player development at that level. Now you've gone even deeper into the minor leagues and there's just not a ton of research into this topic. And I co-wrote a book about it and still would love to see more research about player development in general. It's certainly something I'm interested in and obviously something that's pretty important in baseball and in any sport. So what drew your attention to this topic? Oh, yeah. Um, just really your your book covered a lot of it uh, and I read it. The growing importance and focus on player development within the Major League Baseball organizations. Um, I know, you know, player development has always been a thing, obviously, throughout the history of baseball. But uh, anyone that pays close attention to the game, I think, can see whether you want to look at the past three years, five years, 10 years, the focus on it, I think, has grown, I think, a lot due to the uh, added technology we have within the game has just given teams more data points, more insights into their players, um, which has, I think, allowed uh, more areas to look at with each player, which in turn leads to uh, more areas to uh, work on development and maybe with a greater accuracy or a greater you know, process, uh, more effective process. But yeah, as for the article... Uh, starting with the Hardball Times one, which was written, I think, just a bit over two years ago. That project actually spurred from a tweet by Kyle Bodie, who, as you know, has been very involved with the innovations uh, across baseball player development over the years. He uh, stated something, uh, I don't remember what the exact tweet was, but along the lines of how we can use projections as baselines uh, to evaluate uh, players and factored into evaluation of player development. Um, mm-hmm. And that tweet really uh, just sparked my interest. Um, so I started looking at it, into it on my own. Uh, first thing I thought of, well, 
let's just use a public projection system. So I, um, you know, like Steamer, uh, went with that and uh, just started looking at, you know, obviously just the raw differences um, in performance versus expected performance for each player and just how that uh, looked when you grouped it by each major league organiza organization. And I didn't know how the results would turn out with it, but it was good to see a lot of it matched with intuition, I think. Mm -hmm. I broke it down by hitting and pitching and then also combine those two. Um, and just, you know, a lot of the teams you would think that would come to your head when you ask, you know, the question of what teams are good at developing players. They were at the top, um, Astros, Rays, Dodgers, uh, Cleveland, you know. So, yeah. And then um, after I published that article, the project kind of always just stuck around my head, the question. And uh, obviously that one was focused on major league player development, but I felt that you know, we, I could look at, you know, minor leagues, because uh, I feel like that's where, you know, the bulk of actual baseball player development takes place. Mm -hmm. I said in the article, you know, you're going to have more areas to develop when you're dealing with a, you know, 20, 21 year old pitcher that was just drafted in the 20th round or something. Then, a, you know, 30 year old starting pitcher in the major leagues that already has hundreds of innings under his belt. So yeah, there's just more, you know, player development that goes on in the minor leagues and teams allocate their player development resources uh, accordingly to that. So, uh, yeah, I felt that was definitely an area to look at. Uh, obviously, there were some harder things to deal with. Uh, it's not just as straightforward as taking a projection system at the major league level and comparing it to performance. But So I had to do some ad ad added steps by myself. Uh, but, again, I was pretty satisfied with how the results matched with uh, what we see with our eyes. So that was, again, good to see. And, yeah, you know, I had a lot of fun doing the project. And maybe we can start there. What were some of the challenges you had in creating your own minor league projections and how did you go about constructing those? Because as you said last time, you relied on Steamer and I know that there have been various other attempts, some of which are you know more public than others to come up with good major league equivalencies and sort of minor league projections. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that stuff isn't open. The hood is closed. So how did you go about the process? Oh uh, yeah, I'll start off by uh, saying that the goal of this project wasn't necessarily to build the most like accurate projection system. I validated it and made sure like it was better than just like a baseline of like, say the previous year performance. And it was, so that was good enough for me to use. I felt like, so yeah, I wasn't like trying to, I didn't go too deep into the projection part, but I just used just a lot of the projection. I think basics, uh, if you're trying to build a projection system, which is, you know, just regressing to the mean, uh, waiting past years. I think I went three years back. And uh, adjusting for, you know, things like uh, age, I made an aging curve. That was one thing I didn't have available publicly. As for the MLEs, I used uh, Clay Davenport's numbers. He has available on his site and just applied those to uh, the data I had. And uh, so that was the way, yeah, you had to adjust for, you know, level played at. Obviously, a person who hits for league average in AAA is not going to be the same as a player that hits for league average in low A. Um, so you had to adjust for that. Uh, and I think another big challenge, I don't know if I really got into this much in the article, but was the 2021 season. That was a very different season to what we've seen uh, in the minors from, you know, the other data I was working with, which was 2007 to 2019. And I think uh, a lot of that's obvious, uh, obvious, you know, the restructuring of the minor leagues and canceled season last year caused a lot of things to kind of be uh, a little bit whack uh, compared to past years. So, uh, that kind of threw off the numbers a little bit uh, for this past year. So I had to make some adjustments for that and kind of normalize the numbers a bit. Uh, but yeah, those were the three, I think, biggest difficulties I had to uh, uh, work around. 
And so what form did your results take? How do you deem a system either good or bad or successful or unsuccessful at player development in any given season or a range of seasons? So yeah, I just uh, you take the projection and you compare it to their actual performance and then just the simple delta. You can do a couple different things, I felt like. Uh, you could weight it based off plate appearances. So that way, players in the organization with higher plate appearances would be weighted higher than, you know, players with say someone with like 50 plate appearances or you can just uh take a like make a qualifier like say 200 250 pas whatever you feel good with and just look at the raw average um i thought about it a little i couldn't decide which one was better uh i think i went with a weighted uh, plate appearance so yeah just uh the average of the deltas uh, weighted or unweighted and then um adjusting that to basically the seasonal environments of so what really caused me to adjust for seasonal environments again was the 2021 season. I'm adjusting for that and then, um, you know, applying it on a scale of 100, just like, you know, a lot of baseball stats, WRC plus, OPS plus. And yeah, uh, so if you were, if an organization was like at 103, that means they were, uh, their hitters were 3%. They were, hitters were overperforming 3%. If they were at 95, they were underperforming 5%, 100 average. So yeah, that's how the numbers were displayed for the organizations. And were there any organizational surprises for you as you were working through your results? Uh, yeah, I again, uh, the, at the top, there was uh, a lot of non-surprises, um, which was really what I was looking for, you know, to kind of validate it with the eye test. I did two tables. I looked back three years, uh, and then I looked back at this past year. So on the three-year one, uh, Blue Jays being at the top was a little bit surprising, I think. I think they're pretty well-regarded player development, but they were ahead of the Astros and Rays, which I wouldn't have guessed to be true. Another one was the Pirates being up there. I know they've gotten a lot of recent flack, uh, especially at the major league level uh, with their play development department, but I think they've made some changes in the past years and their minor league, uh, the, at least the data uh, for their minor leaguers, uh, they perform pretty well uh, for both hitters and pitchers. And then um, at the for the 2021 one, uh, the Royals were at the top, which I thought was a bit surprising. Uh, they were number three for hitters and number three for pitchers, number one overall. Watching back in 2019, they had like all of their top prospects underperformed severely. I think actually in the, so I think I had 390 organizations going back to 2007 uh, organization seasons. And the 2019 Royals were 390th out of 390 teams in hitting development and the score I had. And then this year they were number three overall in um, hitting development. They made, and that coincided with a lot of changes they made in their player development organization. I know they switched some guys around in some roles and then, um, added a brought in Drew Saylor from the Dodgers organization to help with their hitting development. And all the prospects that struggled for them last year, uh, they all had amazing years at higher levels, which was kind of amazing to see. But then again, yeah, it was good to see a lot of the non-surprises at the top, you know, the Dodgers, Astros, Rays. So I felt like that at least semi-validated what I was doing. But yeah, there were some surprises mixed in for sure. Yeah. Do you know anything about the year-to-year consistency of this metric? I mean, it's hard to judge what a single season means, especially in this era where you have so much overhaul and turnover and expansion in player development and teams can just really rejigger their entire approach to player development in a year or two or three. So even if you were good at this three years ago, it doesn't necessarily mean you are now. But Do you know if that tends to be the case? I mean, I guess you looked over three years and maybe it's Mm -hmm. almost uh, useless to go back much further than that. But I wonder what the consistency is. 
Yeah, in the minor league one, I didn't really dive too deep into that. In the major league one, I think I found a low level of correlation, like small relationship. I don't know if that was just noise or if there was something to that. But yeah, that, that was part of the reason I did two tables. I wanted to uh, give an insight into what was going on in 2021. But, you know, I felt like one season of uh, sample size maybe wasn't fair to make, you know, 100% drawn out conclusions. Uh, but going back three years also has issues. It does improve your sample. And I think it gives your metric a bigger chance to stabilize. But there are issues, as you mentioned, uh, player development is constantly changing the landscape within baseball overall, just between all 30 teams. And then, you know, teams are constantly making changes uh, with their departments, philosophy changes, It uh, you know, it's constantly evolving. So uh, that was, you know, why I wanted to give those, you know, two different insights. But yeah, I, with the minor league, I, with the minor league uh, project, I didn't really dive too much into year to year correlation. Um, but I would be shocked if there was some for sure. I'm curious if there's other data that you would be interested in incorporating into this model, because obviously performance is, is one good indicator, but I would imagine that when it comes to evaluating player development, that you might also be able to glean something interesting from, say, you know, how many prospects see their hard hit rate improve mm -hmm. or, you know, the the average launch angle change or for a pitching prospect, you know, if you're looking at differences in horizontal or vertical break year to year. So are there other pieces of information that you'd like to incorporate to, to further um, sort of tease out which of these organizations is doing the best by their guys? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say both with uh, publicly and private data. Um, for public data, I think, yeah, like you said, you could break it down further from just overall performance like WRC+. Plus. You could look at what organizations are um, developing contact hitters better. Uh, so look at like K percentage, or you could look at ISO for power. Um, and then, yeah, same thing with pitchers. Uh, you could look at strikeout rate. And then with privately available data, and I think team, a few teams I know, I heard, they do evaluate player development trends within baseball like this. So and obviously have loads more data than what is publicly available. But yeah, you could definitely look at, you know, if a team has a pitch rating uh, based off like pitch characteristics, you could look at what organizations are better at developing stuff or command, um, you know, breaking that down into velocity, uh, horizontal break, vertical break, things like that. Um, so yeah, you could, you could expand this a lot with, uh, you know, other data that is available publicly. And um, if you had access to private data, you could look at, I think a lot, uh, different avenues. Yeah. And I guess another challenge with this is park adjustments, let's say, which mm -hmm. are much more easily available at the major league level than the minor league level, right? So you're using FIP for pitchers and you're using WRC plus for hitters, which is league adjusted, but not park adjusted, mm -hmm. I believe. And so I guess there could be some cases if a player is going from an extreme minor league pitchers park to an extreme minor league hitters park, that sort of thing, it could look like maybe they were outperforming yeah. or underperforming projections. So I guess the framework work is useful here, but maybe some of those inputs just because it's minor league data and they're not quite as high quality or, or adjusting for all the same factors that we're used to with some of their major league equivalents. Yeah, uh, for sure. That was one of the biggest caveats to uh, the minor league project. And that wasn't really something I could adjust for with minor league data. You know, I think teams have access to a good amount of that information, uh, but publicly available. Yeah. And especially too with, you know, all the affiliates changing in 2021, it makes right. it harder. So yeah, uh, that was one of the biggest caveats to this project for sure. Uh, yeah, like you said, if there's a case 
Or maybe if an organization has, you know, going up the ranks of the minor leagues, low A to triple A, uh, if their parks, you know, become more pitcher friendly, that's going to make their hitter scores look bad and their pitcher scores look good. Uh, so for sure, that was one of the biggest caveats. I hoped uh, with a big enough sample size, at least some of that stuff could be eliminated. But yeah, that is something to be cognizant of uh, when looking over the numbers, for sure. I'm also curious, and Patrick, you tell me if this is a stupid question, and if it is, then <laughs> you can tell me that. But I also wonder how you're accounting for sort of the baseline quality of the player involved here, because obviously player development, you know, it isn't linear and they're going to be, mm-hmm. you know, Mike Trout might not vary very much from his projections as a minor leaguer, but those projections might be in themselves very good because he's pretty close to cooked, right? And he's a great player. So I'm curious what sort of quality adjustment there might have been to try to identify what is what is a real change from a player development perspective? What is an expression of underlying sort of innate talent relative to the player? Is that a dumb question? Oh, no, I think that's a good question. I think one idea I had was to totally eliminate like non-prospects uh, from this project. Could, you know, how you want to go about that? I don't know, but you could maybe take like just all prospects listed on MLB pipeline or fan graphs and um, look at that and just eliminate non-prospects totally. What I did was eliminated anyone over the age of 28 as i figured you know those you know if there's anyone in their 30s playing in the minors they're probably in triple a and you know probably there aren't much uh, at least on the organizational side there aren't much major league ambitions uh with that player um in most cases so i wanted to eliminate that from the analysis but yeah i did think about just looking at prospects uh because obviously uh, the majority of the players that you're going to have uh, data on are not going to be major leaguers. They're not going um, to really even be prospects. Uh, so a lot of that was in the data, but I didn't want to totally eliminate that too, as I felt like each major league organization, whether whether it's a prospect or a non-prospect, is still trying to get you know the top and performance out of that player. And you know we've seen plenty of stories of non-prospects uh, turning into something. So I didn't want to totally eliminate uh, uh, those players, but yeah, that was uh, that was actually a idea I had, and I did take some steps to eliminate players that you know I felt weren't really reflective of a developmental process of an organization. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes this uh, fit into our measuring the unmeasurable theme because it's just hard to isolate these things. If you try to quantify how well a team has scouted or drafted, for instance, well, how do you do that without accounting for how well they've developed those players, which is a separate department, or at least historically has been. They're a little bit more integrated these days, but it's hard to isolate those factors. And if you're going to assess the team's development too, then, well, it maybe matters how well you drafted and scouted and Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's like separating you know pitching from defense almost it's just it's hard to isolate some of those things one thing that stood out to me as i'm looking at the list uh, particularly the list since 2018 it seems like there isn't a very strong correlation between a team's rank or performance when it comes to hitters and pitchers. Just looking quickly, I, I think it's like a 0.2 correlation between mm-hmm. the pitcher score and the hitter score for organizations over that period. So it's a fairly weak correlation, although it does seem like you know there aren't a lot of teams that are like close to last in one and close to mm-hmm. the very top in others. There are some teams that seem to 
excel at both or be you know top five top 10 in both certainly and you you mentioned the Astros seem to be up there and the Rays and the Yankees and the Blue Jays and again these are sort of the usual suspects when it comes to oh which teams are good at player development but I guess it makes sense right that you would probably not be terrible at one and great at the other but that there would be some variability i mean it's like you know certain scouts are good at evaluating pitchers more so than they are at evaluating hitters and Mm -hmm. certain systems i guess could be really good at developing a pitching program and not so great at developing a hitting program because those things have been kind of decoupled or pitching was ahead of hitting when it came to development but also like if you have the right people in place and you have sort of good communication and a pipeline and all of that then you'd think probably you shouldn't be completely incompetent at one if you're pretty good at the other yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, intuition would suggest that you would expect to see a small relationship, I think, you know, not perfect, you know, organizations, you know, those hitting and pitching developments, departments don't really work together, but they have a lot, I think, of the same, you know, processes and philosophies, um, because I think they all take direction from what's going on in the major league front office. So, and, you know, those are the people making those hires. Um, so, yeah, you could definitely expect to see some sort of relationship. Um, it was also a good thing too. I didn't want it to be a perfect relationship too, because I think that would signify some of uh, you know the you know pro- the park factor issues we were talking about. Um, right. If the uh, hitter and pitcher scores are lined up, uh, that would probably be some uh, signal of that. But yeah, um, again, I yeah, I wouldn't expect to see a perfect correlation, but definitely some small relationship for sure. I know that it's extremely irritating to do a lot of work and then have someone say, have you considered doing all of this other work that I'm about to suggest to you? But I would be interested, and I know that it would be difficult to sort of track this and ascertain it because it would require very specific knowledge of not only the movements of team personnel, but also who in organizations they ended up working with. But I I wonder if some version of this could point us to sort of tracing more precisely a player development lineage through baseball, right? Because teams hire away from one another all the time, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Seattle hired guys from Cleveland and then some of those guys went other places. And, you know, there's there's a lot of shifting around every couple of years of org members. And so you would expect that some of that DNA transplants into new organizations. And I wonder if there would be a way for us to try to track that because I would be curious as another way of sort of backtesting the reputations that some of these orgs have when we see how their former personnel maybe impart that wisdom to Mm -hmm. new teams. And then, you know, all of a sudden their pitching ranks go up because lo and behold, you know, Tampa is really good at developing pitchers or what have you. Oh yeah, for sure. That was uh, something I thought about briefly was, you know, looking, see if I could group the, the, you know, these data points, uh, you know, by, you know, whether you want to look at certain employees or, departments or like you said uh, lineage uh, from organization to organization uh, that was definitely something that came to mind I think it would be a little bit tough to uh, group and quantify accurately but if you could do it I think it would be very interesting for sure since you published the study have you seen particular fan bases either celebrate it <laughs> or bemoan it if their team didn't do well according to your rankings here who's sort of generated the most discussion when it comes to your findings? Uh, yeah, I think it would be exactly that. The top team and the bottom team, Blue Jays and Rockies fan. 
Poor Rockies fans. You had to pile on those Rockies fans on top of all of their other woes. It is uh, sort of surprising to see them down there, if only because it seems like, if anything, they've been better at player development and developing players internally than they have been at, say, signing them via free agency. But I guess it's not news to Rockies fans that the Rockies are bad at something. So I'm glad, even if you saddened some Rockies fans, that you took a stab at this subject, thorny as it is. I know that the folks at Driveline have done some research at their blog valuing the difference between teams in player development but I think it's good that you did your own version of it and at least provided a template here and even if there are things that we don't know about minor league players that teams do and of course teams know even more about their own minor league players than they do about other teams and they might have access to their workout information and nutrition and sleep and who knows what else but we can't do it perfectly from the outside but I think it's still valuable at least to put it out there and I'm sure that you have gotten some firsthand experience in player development yourself working with the Kansas State baseball team and I know that we have a lot of students who listen to the show and want to know how to get involved in baseball and what they can do and you have done it so tell us a little bit about how that relationship started and what you have done with the team. Yeah so uh, I'll go back a bit I think with a lot of people currently working in baseball and currently seeking to work in baseball um, and you know, when I was younger, you know, the movie Moneyball came out and, you know, I saw that and, um, yeah, that basically spurred my interest in, you know, this field, this industry. And since then, you know, I've been working uh, all I can do to, uh, try to achieve that. So when I went to school at Kansas state, I heard about some other schools that were doing things with volunteer assistants or student managers working on their staff, particularly in analytics. That had been something that I uh, had been working on my own. You know, you mentioned a couple sites I wrote at. Uh, that was all, you know, public research, and I was that helped me refine my skills and sort of gave me a portfolio. Um, you know, so when I reached out to the coaches when I got there, uh, there was this, uh, you know, online blogger uh, reaching out to <laughs> coaches uh, asking if they could help, and um, I was surprised when they responded. Uh, it was actually that a yes, so. Uh, that was great. Um, and I've been working there since finishing up school. Currently, my title is Director of Analytics. So that upstarted the analytics program at K-State. We were the first one there for the baseball team. Uh, so we've really, you know, been uh, getting off the ground with uh, a lot of the technological innovations that teams have been making uh, throughout the years. So we got TrackMan, Rapsodo, Edgertronic. And we've really just been introducing those technologies. And I've overseen a lot of that. And we operate and we manage, we manage all the operations of that. And then, of course, we help out with, you know, your other basic analytical operations, whether that's a, you know, hitter reports, pitcher reports, advanced scouting reports for opponents. So, yeah, uh, that's been a great experience. And uh, I really felt that it's helped prepared me uh, for what I, you know, what my goal is, what I want to do exiting college. And I've really enjoyed it overall. I'm curious what the sort of baseline experience level with those varying technologies and sort of core analytics concepts is among the players who you've worked with and you don't have to name names or anything but you know as guys are coming in sort of how much do they already know about viewing the game through that lens and how receptive are they to incorporating that kind of information into their preparation and training yeah so i'd say when we introduced that technology at k-state across the players there was a varying amount of um past experience or knowledge with it. And again, it was pretty new to baseball at the time we got it. 
I don't think Rapsdale was more than a few years old. Um, and colleges at that time were really starting to get involved, uh, you know, with just baseball technology in general. But I think around the time we got TrackMan was when there was just a huge spike in uh, TrackMan being installed at college baseball stadiums. I think now in Division One, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I want to say like there's a probably near a hundred schools that have radars now and are all involved in most of them are involved in the sharing network. So that's when you, you know, share your data. So yeah, I'd say with the players, you know, outside of the team, you know, they all train at different facilities that have, you know, varying amounts of technology. And uh just, you know, with different players, I think there's different interest within the game. Uh some actually, you know, did have interest on the analytical side. And you know, some don't really, you know, not that that's wrong, but you know, just they just prefer to play and not pay attention to that stuff, which is totally fine. So, yeah, I think I'm not a coach or anything, but I think when you're a coach trying to implement technology with that stuff, you have to keep that in mind uh, that, you know, some players are going to be really smart on this stuff because uh, that's what interests them and uh, they have past experience with it. And then some players are going to be new to it. It's going to be pretty foreign to them. So, yeah, when you when you're uh, a team implementing a bunch of new tools like that, uh, you have to keep that in mind. And for those who don't know, the amateur level in college, especially the big programs, has really been a, a hotbed of player development in recent years. I mean, mm-hmm. major league teams are hiring coaches from the college level often, although sometimes coaches will go from major league teams back to college because it might yeah. be a, a better working environment or they might make even more money there than they would with a major league organization. So I'm sure that you have seen that. I mean, even if the players at college don't know about these technologies and these concepts when they get to college. By the time they get drafted, if they do, I think often they're entering those player development systems really having been steeped and seasoned in that stuff because of their college experience. Yeah, uh, obviously with uh, college, um, there's going to be more you know restrictions in a major league team with budgeting and stuff. Uh, but for the top tier programs, that will be less so. Uh, yeah, and uh, a lot of them, you've seen a lot more, uh, I want to say, you know, changing of positions between uh, the NCAA and Major League Baseball organizations, uh, whether, yeah, like you said, jumping from NCAA to the pro- professional level or professional down to college. And I think that will only increase, too. I think I wouldn't be surprised if call- you see college teams here um, within the next few years start hiring their own analysts, at least the top tier programs, I think. And I think, you know, a, lot- a few colleges are starting to work into full-time staff members' uh, responsibilities. And uh, yeah, again, with the top tier programs, you're gonna see less less of those, you know, budgeting restrictions. uh, So they can invest more into the resources that may allow for them to, uh, you know, hire an employee uh, that is devoted to that Mm full-time. So, you know, whether it's technology, like, you know, TrackMan, Rapsodo, all of that, or actual like labor um, of an employee, uh, I think you're only gonna see that increase uh, for sure. And, um, you know, some, I think like, some schools have gone way into it. Um, I know, you know, Wake Forest is famous for their uh, pitching lab, which I think mm-hmm. is probably one of the best uh, in the country. But yeah, I think you're only going to see this trend not slow down. Yeah. So last thing before we let you go, you did do one other article at your blog in October, I believe, called Entropy and Pitch Sequencing. And this is a, another subject that's proven a tough nut to crack for mm-hmm. analysts and 
I guess you were looking at it more in terms of pitch mix and variation and predictability more so than, say, what the effect one pitch would have on the subsequent pitch, for instance. But what was the approach that you took here and what kind of advantages do you think could be gained by studying that subject? Yeah. So in the article with the actual pitch type sequencing, I just calculated a entropy bits, which was, I believe, research done in the past. Uh, it hadn't been done in a while, so that's why I was interested in it. I think Rob Arthur did it at Baseball Prospectus maybe about like 10 years ago or so. So yeah, I, I remember that article. I looked over it a few times. I hadn't seen anything like it in the public sphere in the past couple of years, so I was just interested in looking at my own. Yeah, and I think with pitch sequencing, you can look at it and you can attempt to quantify it in a variety of ways. You know, actual predictability is one thing, as I did in that article, but you can look at it like actual like sequencing between like maybe two pitch types. So what's the effect of throwing a fastball changeup compared to a changeup fastball with a pitcher? So sequencing, it's a very broad term within baseball. And you know, that makes it even you know harder to quantify. It's very complex, but that makes it all the more interesting, I think. And I still think there, you know, can be a, there's a lot of room for improvement uh, within that area of study. Uh, and you know, some things that could possibly be cracked in the future that really help us understand the game more. All right. Well, you can find Patrick on Twitter at Painting Corner, and I will link to all the work that we discussed today. And I know that you worked for the Reds and did some TrackMan operation and baseball analytics work for them last year. Are you expecting slash hoping to be going into baseball full time as soon as you're done with school? Oh, yeah, that's the goal. Always looking for work, you know, when school's uh, not in the way. So over the summer, too. But yeah, after I graduate next year, that will definitely be a goal, whether I have to intern, you know, one or two more times, ideally. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would, that, that, that is my goal. Uh, that has not, nothing's gotten in the way of that yet. And that's what I'm focused on. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing anything to set myself up the best I can for that. Yep. Seems like you're doing a pretty good job to me. So uh, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we'll be sorry to lose your work when it goes behind the motive secrecy somewhere, but we will enjoy it until then as we enjoyed having you on today. So thanks very much, Patrick. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment to talk with Grant Washburn of PitcherList about measuring ownership performance and unpurchased wins. are joined now by Grant Washburn, who wrote a piece for PitcherList last week called Measuring Ownership Performance, Unpurchased Wins. I believe this was his PitcherList debut. So Grant, you are one for one in writing something about baseball and getting invited on the podcast to talk about it. So <laughs> hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so most of the interviews we're doing this week are about player evaluation, and this is not 
but I think it's a very important area and also maybe an understudied area and understandably understudied, I suppose, mm-hmm. because it certainly fits into the measuring the unmeasurable idea because this is a, a pretty tough one to actually put a value on. But what made you want to take a crack at this topic? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. You know, one is that I think this time around when it comes to the the union and the way that it's framing the argument in the public square is they've they've been doing it pretty effectively, I think, by kind of allying themselves with competitive integrity. And I think that's an mm-hmm. area that owners in previous years have effectively kind of commanded how the public narrative uh, was being told around particularly revenue sharing and uh, competitive integrity in in that respect. I think this this time around the players are doing a really good job of, you know, it seems pretty obvious I think to most people that it that the players at this are are really on the side of competitive integrity, and I think well that's probably generally true. It's just more it's it's being more effectively communicated right now. So. One of the things I wanted to do was, you know, I see a, there's there's a lot of discussion around payroll and uh, how much how profitable a team may or may not be. But I wanted to kind of uh, ask, well, what would it look like to incorporate wins into that kind of analysis? Because I think if we really want to talk about how how teams um, are or are not competitive, um, we should really be talking. And and if the MLB is willing to give us the uh, kind of license to consider wins in terms of U.S. dollars based on this more recent proposal to replace arbitration with with a, a, a war dollar figure. It just seemed like a good time to kind of put those things together and say, OK, well, what does uh, unspent money look like in terms of wins? And there are a number of challenges here, not the least of which is that you know, a detailed look into team finances is sort of beyond the purview of the public sphere. But there are other concerns here in trying to come up with something that resembles what we might be familiar with on the war side when it comes to player evaluation. So what was your process here? What uh, what things did you try to measure and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not, uh, my 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 paper is not a Cameron Grove paper in terms of its, <laughs> you know, analytic sophistication. This is very much, you know, and as as Ben referenced at the beginning, this is my first piece. Uh, it's actually my first piece of baseball writing at all. So, you know, this was very much for me an attempt to kind of frame a question a particular way and and take a stab at trying to answer it. But I think there's there's good reasons to do it the way that I did it. Um, so the way I went about it was uh, I, I kind of just take uh, payroll as a percentage of revenue as kind of a fundamental um, ratio that's worth about worth uh, that that can tell us something about how a team is investing what it takes in into wins. And so really what I did was I, I looked at I went through and kind of manually um, uh, logged all of uh, the Forbes valuations that have been annually produced by you know Forbes magazine some of them are not currently on their website anymore so i kind of just went through a bunch of old archives and found scanned documents of every uh you know previous publication logged them and then asked myself okay uh well now that i have all this data i have the uh you know the payroll numbers from uh, the layman database uh, what do what would it look like to then ask 
What's a sort of competitive baseline for spending payroll in proportion to re- to revenue? What could basically become an- analogous to the the replacement level player uh, in a war calculation? And so I eventually came up with uh, using the 90th percentile of payroll as a, as a as a portion of revenue. And the reason I did that was because uh, I had kind of played around with a few different ideas. Uh, the first was just to kind of base the calculation off of uh, league averages. And I quickly started to realize that it wasn't really reflecting um, shifts in league-wide trends, uh, and and it wasn't really making those apparent. Um, and that that seemed problematic to me. It also seemed just just like in the case, I, I kind of addressed this in the piece, but whereas uh, I think wins above replacement, you know, you start uh, an average player is, is generally pretty good already. Uh, you know, historically, as time has gone on, teams have been spending less and less of their revenue uh, on payroll. So I wanted to be able to figure that in to the way I was presenting things. I decided that it was probably not in my best interest to just go with the highest proportion in a given year. And so I wanted to go with 90th percentile because it gave me some some buffer space. You know, we're dealing essentially with estimations from Forbes. These aren't, you know, published figures from teams. And so uh, the idea is to take the 90th percentile in order to show kind of an, an upper tier uh, of spending, which um, teams have decided not to spend like, you know, teams below that that percentile. And so after that, it's basically just adjusting uh, adjusting payroll or presenting a kind of a hypothetical team payroll um, in proportion to that 90th percentile, subtracting actual uh, uh, actual payroll and then uh, dividing it by a, a war dollar figure um, based on some Fangraphs articles. Uh, so it's very, the calculation is ultimately very simple. And it's very much a uh, kind of a first step at taking a look at uh, what do these figures tell us in terms of how much a team is willing to spend in order to win. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, you know, there are there are a number of things that I could have done to try to complexify that model, even with the data that we have available. Um, but I actually think that there's something kind of with payroll to revenue, uh, there's something that's that uh, is kind of fundamental about that uh, that ratio. And when you start to complexify things by trying to take into account other expenses, you quickly realize that there are uh, a number of expenses that probably shouldn't be counted in this kind of uh, analysis. And there are also uh, a number of accounting tricks that make it difficult to really see where money is coming from and where it's going. Uh, so those two things made me want to take a simpler approach. And so that's the that's the reason I went the way I did. Yeah. And obviously the fact that almost all teams don't have to open their books and certainly don't do so voluntarily means that we're relying on the Forbes estimates here. So, I mean, if you had open books, if you had any data that you wanted, then I guess you wouldn't have to rely on those outside estimates for one thing. But are there any other things that you wish you knew if you did want to make a more complex model and you actually had the data to do it? Yeah. So, I mean, one possibility would be, of course, to just, I, I think a, a more fair look would include as much as we can know about 
expenses related to player development, uh, expenses related to analytic departments, expenses. These are ex- expenses that vary across teams. They're, the differences are more marginal, so I don't think that it would ultimately affect the, the number too substantially, but they're there and they're they're real. The difficulty is, though, is that if we were to actually, we have had some examples of, of teams with open books. I mean, there was back in 2001, I think it was, there was the report to Congress where MLB tried to argue that it was losing millions every year. And, uh, you know, you can kind of look through those figures. There's some really interesting uh, pieces in baseball prospectus. I think it's Doug Pappas. Pappas, I think, yeah. Pappas, mm-hmm. yes. And he, he's done a number of things to in, in the past, I know, 20 years ago, to analyze those books. Uh, but you can also just look at teams like uh, the Atlanta Braves, who have to give some kind of report annually because they are owned by, uh, what is it, Liberty Media? Mm-hmm. If you look at those books, you ultimately end up finding out a few things that are really interesting, which is that, you know, they have in recent years, uh, you know, overshot Forbes estimates of their revenue. Um, they include things like development revenue. Forbes also doesn't include TV stakes. So the Yankees make much more than Forbes reports, for example, you know, having stakes in, in Yes Network. And then you also find various ways in which expenses are calculated uh, that can really obscure the figures for the public and and allow for a very legally honest way to say that teams are losing money. So if you, uh, you know, there's a there's a famous quote from Paul Beeston, who was the president of the Blue Jays, where he said, with you know some basic accounting tricks, I can turn four million in uh, in in revenue into two million in loss. And you can kind of see those on display in the Braves reports. They'll have things like uh, based on uh, roster depreciation allowance, which is something where teams are able to uh, deduct or they're able to count as an expense uh, toward taxes and in their financial reports. The, um, the entirety of a player's contract over the course of 15 years as an as a depreciating asset, and so they'll if you look at the Braves, they'll say, "Oh, we're losing seventy four million a year." Well, that's what that really means is that they're actually counting a player's contract twice. So you start seeing these kinds of things when you actually open the books and you realize maybe we could have a more complex model if we were to include, uh, you know, competitive types of expenses. Um, but there are also a number of ways in which the books are are kind of kind of obscuring what I think is more fundamental, which is spending what you take in. I think, you know, another another important way, one, one thing that we could look at, uh, it would be really nice to have number, figures of, would be uh, ownership salary numbers. Um, one of the ways that teams, uh, you know, talk about operational expenses, if you look at the Braves, they'll say that their team expenses are twice as much as their reported player payroll. And some of that's going to minor leagues, some of that's going to player development. Uh, they say that there are other things, and um, we don't know what they are. If we look, but one thing that we we do know is that owners are often take uh, a certain amount of profit, and they count it as an expense uh, in their books because they're taking it as a salary. So things like that uh, would be nice to know, but unfortunately, we don't know uh, anything about those things. So except in these few instances. I'm curious where and how you think we should think about the luxury tax thresholds when we're thinking about this, because on the one hand, I'm reticent to use them the way that ownership seems keen to, right, as sort of a hard cap, Mm -hmm. because they want there to be a 
tax thresholds. They're actively uh, working to lower the tax threshold in these CBA negotiations. So I don't think that we should view it as sort of a constriction on their spending that they aren't asking for themselves. But on the other hand, I do think that Mm -hmm. it is useful to get a sense of, you know, sort of what is their willingness to spend around those numbers, if only to understand Mm -hmm. how often they are willing to, say, go over one or two or or even three of the luxury tax thresholds versus the years when they dip down. And I realize that might be hard to sort of figure in here, but I wonder if you've thought about future iterations of this that might sort of look at those numbers relative to the luxury tax, because even if we don't take those into consideration, there is sort of some Mm -hmm. sort of upper limit that we might envision for what teams are going to spend, even if they have an extreme willingness to spend because they only have 26 roster spots, right? And there are only so many free agents. So I'm curious how we might think about that, even just theoretically for future iterations of this exercise, because our theme this week is to bring people on who have done Mm -hmm. good work and then ask them questions about how they would change it in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I think one way you could go about that would be, and this is not something I did in this model, you could look at uh, kind of how, since since we're talking about a war per dollar number, um, there is this assumption that that is the same across um, spending. And that's not the case because in years where you are meeting that threshold, there's a higher tax. And so technically, even though the, the payroll is a, is a certain amount, teams are looking at this as an, invest, an investment that includes that tax. So one way that you could do that would be you know, to adjust that war dollar figure um, past that mark um, in the calculation of the hypothetical uh, replacement level ownership uh, spending number. Uh, so that would be one way to go about it. As far as how I think about uh, about the uh, the luxury tax threshold in general, I think it's an and it's an example of of how teams are uh, able to use um, competitive balance as a means to really just suppress wages. Uh, when you look at the previous iterations of the luxury tax, they used to be based on ranks. I think up through two thousand two, and then for a couple of years they uh, didn't have them, and then they they. Uh, uh, created this new uh, threshold system. And once that happened, you quickly started to realize that really um, this old uh, antagonism between large market teams and small market teams became very different because the team, the small market teams weren't just taking money from owners who had spent the most. They were taking money from owners who had decided to give it to them. And uh, what we've seen in recent years is, you know, you look at, I mentioned this in the piece, how Steinbrenner uh, in in a recent proposal from the MLB had given, uh, I just said the MLB, so uh, I we'll Ben's get to that. Don't worry. That. <laughs> <laughs> Hal Steinbrenner voted uh, in favor, or, or at least supported, a proposal to lower the luxury tax just this past year, as as reported by the Athletic. And what that tells us is, you know, essentially that. Um, this old antagonism between large market teams, you know, the famous George Steinbrenner doesn't want to subsidize Bud Selig's brewers, that kind of antagonism doesn't exist in the same way. How, uh, because because by lowering the tax threshold, Hal is able to give an excuse for why he isn't spending more. Um, and so it's actually in his interest uh, right. not to uh, increase the competitive uh, value of his team. So that's, I think that's ultimately kind of the intellectual exercise that I'm trying to to uh, bring about with this piece is really just to reflect more uh, 
more explicitly on how the, the very structure of team ownership as it as it currently stands is i think in many ways um counter to uh the competitive nature of the game i think if you if you talk to fans you know oftentimes fans uh you know you you, you see people talk about uh different team spending they want competitive balance i th- some of them are you know uh upset by teams that spend more others say well spending to win is good I think one thing that most people agree on is that uh, they want to see teams trying to win. Um, I think that's that's one thing that they they tend to agree on. And uh, and what we see when we start taking a deeper look is that as that owners have realized that spending on payroll is profitable up to a certain extent, and then it's not much more profitable after that, and there are more profitable ways to spend revenue past a certain competitive level. And so they uh, choose to invest elsewhere. And if that's the case, then I think it actually is uh, in the best interest of the sport to ask, well, um, how do we curb that? Because if we want to have this product, which is fundamentally a competition, shouldn't we have its participants being players in the game? And owners seem to be the, the incentives that structure ownership are kind of moving in the opposite direction. So Yeah. And you went from two thousand to twenty nineteen here. And mm-hmm. I guess one thing that people might be a bit surprised to see is that almost every team is below zero, is in negative numbers here for the That's most right. recent season that you looked at. And I guess, you know, usually if you're saying, well, replacement level, they can't all be below replacement level, right? Or maybe they should be. Maybe owners should all be spending more, but uh, clearly Mm -hmm. they are not. So the owner replacement level is what it is. So is it a problem that most of the numbers are negative, I guess, for 2019, except for the Nationals and Mm -hmm. the Rockies were the only ones who were in the black there. And then the Mariners were dead even. And then everyone else was negative. Or does that just generally reflect the fact that across the board, teams are not investing what they could at this stage of the game? Yeah. So I think, and for listeners, if if you want to look, I do have a a Google sheet at the bottom of the piece that links to all of the figures for 2000 through 2019. So you can see, and they're, they're all very negative, like you say. And and the reason for that is really, I mean, it's, it's kind of baked into the calculation, but I think there's, it makes good sense, which is that if you can, if you can see that potential spending toward putting together a team is, uh, is higher than actual spending, um, then really the value, uh, that an owner adds is by uh, meeting that potential, and, and otherwise, the there's not much, many other ways for the the owner to actually be adding value, uh, if that makes sense. So, if you look at something like someone like the Nationals, right? They're spending, I think it, it was it's a it's a pretty high figure uh, in 2019. I'm forgetting uh, the exact percentage. I have to bring it up here. But they are spending way beyond what the rest of the league is, and they have a decent revenue. And it's suggestive that if this is if this is a, a possible way to spend um, at that level of revenue, then we might look at other teams and say, well, what what are the reasons why this isn't being spent elsewhere? And usually we can come up with various reasons, and they have to do with um, that money being placed elsewhere, uh, and not necessarily toward organizational expenses that are baseball related. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there 
any evidence in your analysis that teams might go through down periods of payroll relative to revenue to then ramp up to greater spending, perhaps when they think that they're um, closer to a, a viable competitive window relative to uh, the rest of their division or even the league? Yeah. So I, I if you look at the the whole sheet uh, from 2000 to 2019, you do see these kinds of periods of spending and then these periods where teams aren't spending. I want to spend more time trying to identify trends there. But one trend we don't see is uh, any relation of that kind of volatility to um, the team's revenue. So teams with large revenues and teams with, teams with small revenues don't necessarily spend differently as time goes on. They eat both, both across the board. Some of them spend in a more volatile way or a less volatile way, and there's really no correlation. And, and the reason I think that's significant is because I think in recent years, we've become very used to the idea that in order to be competitive, a small market team or a low revenue team in general, they would have to tank for several years, then um, they can build some kind of uh, competitive base, and then they can add to it in free agency, and then they have a, a window of being a viable team uh, that may be able to compete for uh, you know, a pennant or uh, a ring or a division or even just to get into the playoffs. And those windows are real. There's definitely, uh, you know, if you do, they usually last, I think, there's a piece in in the Saber Research Journal where some it's usually on average about five years, and then uh, but sometimes it's three and sometimes it's ten, and it really just depends on how a team um, builds itself for longevity. I that's the issue is that I have a pretty small sample here, and finding trends among thirty teams over the course of twenty years is probably going to be less. It's it's probably not going to yield anything definitive. I do think it's the case, though, that you see these periods of spending. So if you look uh, you know, on those sheets, you see George Steinbrenner from like 2004, I think, to 2006. He's spending so astronomically that he's actually putting up very high positive win numbers. Um, and this is when the team is, you know, it doesn't end up winning a championship during these years, but this is when the team is is very built out and there's every reason to think they'll be competitive every year. But then it fizzles out and starts up again and fizzles out. So yeah, I think I think uh, they're there. I'm not sure what I can make out of the data that I have, um, but it's something that I want to explore more, uh, try to identify trends uh, within the data where possible. So looking at one of your leaderboards or laggard boards here of the bottom 10 current principal owners or managing partners from this 2000 to 2019 period, these are the active ones. And there are some names that almost have to be on there or you wonder, I mean, <laughs> does this method actually telling us anything, right? So to no one's surprise, I think you will see Tom Ricketts of the Cubs is on there and Bob Nutting of the Pirates is on there and Larry Dolan mm -hmm. of Cleveland is on there and Stu Sternberg of the Rays is on there. I mean, you had to have them on there somewhere or I might question the validity of the metric, but <laughs> it's not all that. I mean, it's not just the teams with the lowest payrolls generally. And if it were, then this would not be very useful. And there's actually a, a pretty good range here of payrolls and even some teams that we think of as spending more. But once you take the revenue into account, proportionally speaking, maybe it's not all that impressive. So what were some of the notable results or surprises for you? Yeah. So I think 
Well, I think this wasn't surprising to me. So I, I grew up a Yankee fan, so I definitely am very familiar with the way that the Yankees run. And But I do think it's at least notable that Hal Steinbrenner, during his tenure, on average, according to the metric, WBRO or WBRO, whatever you want to call it, he's been on average worth negative 17.8 wins per year. And that's the worst. Yeah, it's it's the worst by a lot. And over the course of the last 20 years, it's uh, unprecedented. And the reason why is because the team's revenue has continued to increase to the point where I think at this point, it's twice the league average. And yet they don't always carry the highest payroll in, in the league. And yes, we can talk about organizational expenses, uh, but fundamentally that doesn't add up. Uh, and, and I think it's pretty obvious uh, once you start realizing just how high that revenue is. And as I said, the Forbes estimate doesn't even include their stakes in uh, the TV network. So, you know, you, you see something like that, that, that stands out to me, obviously. But another is something like uh, Jim Crane in Houston. I mean, clearly a team that's been very effective in recent years. But I think what surprised me most was just how much revenue the Astros have pulled in, given the way that they posture with regard to payroll. Uh, They're not a team that anyone expects to spend at a high level, but they could afford a lot more than they do. Um, And so I think seeing Jim Crane as high as he is, negative 11.3 wins per year on average, uh, that was pretty startling to me. I I don't think I expected that. So, uh, but maybe that's just because I'm, uh, you know, not a, an Astros fan. I'm sure Astros fans have been complaining for a while. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the Yankees is interesting because you do still hear that refrain from Yankees fans. Oh, you know, if George were still around, et cetera, et cetera. And things weren't always great when George was around either. And it's almost yeah. like if you could combine... Hal's lack of meddling with baseball operations and just lack of, you know, firing people constantly, although some Yankees fans would like him to fire people more often, (laughs) but, but, you know, just not introducing that mayhem and chaos and meddling aspect with his dad's willingness to spend. Like when people say, oh, if George were still around, I mean, they are maybe taking a rosy view of what George was actually like, but... They're onto something, really, because there is more of a conservatism seemingly in spending and breaking mm-hmm. the competitive balance tax threshold and all those things in the younger Steinbrenner than there was in the elder. That's right. And I think I think um, that's a really important point to emphasize here. Uh, and I try to address this at the beginning of the piece. But the, the basic idea behind the piece is to isolate ownership as essentially uh, a... Uh, looking at ownership performance essentially as a willingness to spend revenue. And that abstracts intentionally um, from the effectiveness of how that money is spent. So you look at someone like Stu Sternberg, who is on average negative 9.4, and you think, well, maybe that's that's true, but I would expect the Rays to do a lot better with that money than anyone else in the league because they just you know the organizationally they their decision making is kind of next to none and so you'd expect that really uh, the Rays would be more effective if given a, a higher payroll at spending that money or you look at some of the the examples of teams I think you mentioned in 2019 the Rockies are uh, at the very top and they they remain uh, bigger spenders proportionately. Uh, or pretty consistently from 2000 to 2019, but I wouldn't say that they're an effectively run organization. So this is really not a um, a leaderboard of, uh, you know, 
you know, who's best at spending money. It's very mm -hmm. much who's most willing to spend money. Right, exactly. Right. And sometimes if you are unwilling to spend money and yet you hire the right people who are good at winning without spending a lot of money, then you're the race, which uh, if you're a race fan, maybe that works out fine for you in that respect. Mm -hmm. But all else being equal, of course, you'd rather have an owner who was willing to invest in the team. But you're right. It's not a perfect correlation there. But I think it is important to even just have a rough approximation of this because we talk all the time about little edges in in-game tactics or player valuation and really like all of that can be completely overshadowed by your ownership if you have terrible ownership then it's going to be tough for you to go far even if they are willing to spend if they do other things if they hire the wrong people which again is not mm -hmm. really covered that's not in the purview of your study here but ownership quality matters as much as or more than anything it's just harder to assess and i guess also maybe less productive to assess because if the study shows that you have a lousy owner well what are you going to do about it right they own That's the team right, yeah. so <laughs> you can't necessarily replace them unfortunately for pirates fans <laughs> right right and and i think you know it's interesting you mentioned this kind of uh, combining the sort of uh, efficiency of spending with uh, you know someone who's willing to spend and, you know, I think in many ways, people have been talking about the Dodgers this way for the last few years. They've talked about the Dodgers as, you know, the new Yankees or something. And though I think mm -hmm. that um, the Dodgers spend their money far more effectively than George Steinbrenner would. And, and, you know, that's partially the case. I mean, we can see that they, you know, they consistently post very high payrolls compared to the league. They're often going over the luxury tax. Sometimes you think, oh, they have such a, a high uh, payroll currently. There's no way they sign the next big free agent. And then they do. But if you look from 20, 2017 to 2019, for example, you see that they're, they're, dropping 7.8 wins, 11.6 wins, 8 wins. And that's because in recent years, uh, partially due to them being an effective organization, they've increased revenue by quite a bit. So really, uh, no, are they anything like the, the Yankees 15 years ago in terms of their willingness to spend? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Are they much more efficient at it? Yes. Um, do they show what's possible for a team with that kind of revenue stream? Somewhat. But they could do a lot more. And I think, um, if anything, they just kind of uh, shed light on uh, the fact that um, at this point, there's such a low demand for spending high in free agency that, uh, across the entire league that these figures can get as mm -hmm. big as they do. Right. Yeah. I mean, player development was the subject of our first interview today. And if you're really good at player development, the way the Dodgers have been with hitters, especially, well, then you're going to get productive players who aren't making much money. And right. you could just spend even more in other areas. I mean, you could go load up on free agents, but it's almost like you have fewer roster spots to improve. I mean, if you do a good enough job at player development, then it's almost hard to spend as much as you quote unquote should because because the returns will be so sure. diminishing beyond a certain point. If you're the Dodgers, of course, there aren't that many teams that do 
that as well as the Dodgers do. But that's one reason why teams are so interested in player development these days is because if you're good oh, at that, then you can win without actually spending, which is what all owners want to do, I think. So this is uh, a good start at measuring this, I think, as well as we can from the public perspective. And you have the full results in a spreadsheet linked from the piece, and I will link to the piece itself as well as that spreadsheet on our show page. So before we let you go, you have said the MLB a couple times during this segment, and I don't think there were any the MLBs in the article, so I suppose I can thank <laughs> your pitcher list editor for that maybe. But I saw after I had invited you on to talk about this piece that your Twitter bio says that you are a historian of late antique religion who loves numbers and defends saying the MLB. And when I saw that, I had second thoughts about this whole segment. <laughs> I'm giving a platform to someone with dangerous ideas. Do you have an actual defense? Is this based on some theory here? Because this has been a pet peeve of ours, people who say the MLB yeah. instead of MLB. So uh, I will say as a caveat, I don't trouble my editors. So <laughs> I do think I do believe in editorial practice and standardization. And, and so I'm not saying... You know, I, I wouldn't write this way necessarily, but I do find that there's oftentimes these tweets where people are, you know, dunking on people for using the phrase the MLB. And <laughs> the reason that I defend it might be more or less interesting, depending on what you're, <laughs> you're expecting. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's really based off of uh, a familiarity with a lot of uh, languages that I, you know, have to use in my day job. And just the sort of orientation that I have toward language in general, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, linguistic rules are really just uh, attempts to standardize a non-standard system of communication that mm -hmm. develops organically. And those rules are more logical than <laughs> the actual phenomena they're trying to evaluate. And so... Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're talking about something like saying the MLB, well, in general, when it comes to initialisms, in, in many instances anyway, we do use the before, right. regardless uh, necessarily of, of uh, whether or not it makes sense if we were to uh, spell out the initial, the initials. And, and so, you know, there are exceptions to this, uh, certainly. And uh, Major League Baseball does not speak this way about itself, but I do think that it's to, you know it's something you can expect that that kind of usage would develop, given the fact that you have you know for example other leagues, uh, other major mm -hmm. sports leagues that use the uh, yep. and and you know for good reason. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's really just based on a general orientation towards language, which is that I take usage first rather than rules. Or, mm -hmm. or 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 logic, and then I ask myself why they developed the way that they did, and uh, you know, uh, uh, from a personal place, like this is how I talked, and there was reason that I talked that way, so I might as well continue. I think in general, when it comes to grammatical things like this, yeah, I guess uh, I just I just tend toward defending how people speak in general, yep. and yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes <laughs> yeah that's a very reasonable argument and it is. while i do not i will not use the mlb i <laughs> am in favor of people not being overly fussy about language just to be overly fussy so yeah 
Yeah. It's still nails on a chalkboard for me personally, <laughs> but I don't want to be too much of a linguistic prescriptivist when it comes to these things. Exactly. So I, I do understand why it happens and everyone knows what you mean when you say it, but still just don't say it. But um, <laughs> all right. So I read the first part of your bio there that you're a historian of late antique religion, and I'm always interested in the day jobs that baseball analysts have. And we talked to an astrophysicist earlier this week who does baseball analysis sometimes, and you're a historian of late antique religion who does baseball analysis sometimes, and your Twitter header is an image of what looks like a late religious text with a, a Fangraphs player page superimposed over it, which I'm sure is not what it is actually like to be a historian <laughs> of late antique religion. Maybe that's what you wish it were like, but what does that actually entail? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm, I I study uh, second and third century, largely Christian texts as the primary objects of kind of my historical work. But a lot of what I do is kind of in relation to or adjacent to uh, the field of comparative religions. So what that means is basically just the kind of comparative analysis of how different uh, religious uh, thought practice worship, et cetera, how they're related to each other or how we can put them in relation to each other. And I, I, what I do is I look at these kind of second and third century texts and I, and I try to ask how these texts are trying to orient themselves in relation to other cultural practices um, and differentiate, find, find commonality, find uh, differentiation and, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, what it looks like on the day to day is, uh, you know, trying to reconstruct a bunch of things that don't exist anymore. So I spend a lot of time, you know, reading texts in Latin that are translations of texts that originally were written in Greek, uh, and then just kind of cross-referencing what we have and what we don't have and looking at uh, old, uh, largely medieval copied manuscripts of, you know, all of these texts and trying to see whether or not the decisions of scholars in the 18th or 19th century about how they print those manuscripts uh, on paper, whether or not they they hold up to scrutiny. So in many ways, I guess there I do identify with my my banner on my Twitter page, which is you know <laughs> throughout the day I'm looking at either digitized manuscripts or uh, fan graphs pages, and in either case it's kind of my sacred text. So <laughs> well, we appreciate that and uh, are glad we can give you a little distraction during your day. So thank you very much for coming on, and uh, you can find Grant on Twitter at throwing gas underscore g-a-s-s-e and we will link to this study as well thank you very much grant thank you really appreciate being on all right by the way one thing that i didn't mention in the first segment about player development i'm interested in trying to quantify the improvement in player development in recent years that was sort of outside the scope of patrick's study which was about comparing teams i'm interested in comparing eras and i did ask patrick to take a look at that and he did and he couldn't find anything that seemed super significant to him in terms of recent improvement in the 2007 to 2021 data set he was using. It should be there. I think it's just tough to detect because, of course, sports is sort of a zero-sum game. If you're improving pitcher development and improving hitter development, it might not be obvious that both are developing better than they used to because they're playing each other. So he looked at raw mean and 90th percentile outcomes and standard deviations and rate of overperformers, and nothing really jumped out. 
I don't know what the best way to look for an era effect in player development would be. It would be surprising, I think, if you did not see some improvement in player development given the total overhaul in methods and the improvements in technology and the greater investments that teams have made. I think it's just teasing out the signal there. Maybe you could look for more breakouts, for instance, the rates of large improvements. But then again, if everyone is improving at player development, then you might not see huge leaps because people would just be making slow and steady gains or would not be going 0 to 60. So if anyone sees any studies on quantifying the improvement in player development across the sport in recent years, I would be very interested in any work along those lines. It's just all relative, which is the problem. It's like looking at stats at the major league level. Obviously, players are more athletic and skilled and talented and better at baseball today than they were a long time ago. But they're also playing opponents who are better, and so the stat lines might look similar. You have to do more complex analyses to try to track that improvement over time. And that kind of thing has been done, and I've written about that before. But player development's a bit stickier. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free and get themselves access to some perks. Yusuke Matsuzaki, Ryan Pavlicek, Peter Wigan. I don't know if that's an Ender's Game reference or just his actual name, but either way, Peter, happy to have you. Justin Bobko and Christian Scarborough, thanks to all of you. Patreon supporters can get access to the exclusive Patreon-only Discord group, as well as monthly Patreon-only bonus episodes and other perks. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Send your questions and comments for me and Meg to podcast at fangraphs.com. Or message us via Patreon if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can join the discussion on Reddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then. I'm so sick of the